Today is Friday, June 17th, and this is People Every Day. Hi, it's me, Janine Rubenstein. Happy Friday. We have a special, and I must say, heartbreaking show for you today, an exclusive interview with country star Ty Herndon. Herndon sat down with People Deputy West Coast Editor Jason Sheeler to speak for the very first time about his battle with addiction and sexual assault. So now I'm going to hand the mic over to Jason, who conducted that interview. Take it away, Jason. Let's go back to the mid-90s. Country music was becoming a bigger tent. Thanks to Garth Brooks, Leanne Rimes, and Shania Twain, country radio was hot, country pop was on, and Nashville was on a hiring spree, with new stars popping up left and right. The class of 1995, as it were, included debut albums from the Dixie Chicks, now just the Chicks, Patti Loveless, and Colin Ray. By my count, 82 artists made their country debut between 1995 and 1996, and among them was an Alabama native turned Texas honky-tonk star, Ty Herndon. We were on it, man. It was Urban Cowboy. It was, oh my God. Uh, it was crazy. I was country's new darling. I was slated to be the next Garth Brooks, the guy for stadiums. But what set Ty apart was the quality of his voice. His debut album, What Mattered Most, which had five number one songs and sold six million records, had rave reviews. Of them was this. If voices could be mined like gold or silver, you might say that Ty Herndon somewhere along the way hit the mother load. I called him the golden throat. I think he could have done any kind of music he wanted to, but the voice, this is top pure technical voice. Those chords are golden and you're just born with them or you're not. You might recognize that voice. It belongs to Tony Award winner Kristen Chenoweth, Ty's longtime friend. They've toured and recorded together. When Ty sings, you can see it in his face that voice trying to come out. His brow furrows, his hands go out, and the hint of a smile spreads across his face. He told me he was anointed, that his voice, his talent, is God-given. He actually discovered it while singing, and even preaching, in his rural Alabama church in the 70s. His faith is still a big part of him. It's reflected in the necklace he wears and the angel wings hanging on his wall. And after a life filled with so much pain, that voice is still strong. In fact, it was very strong as I sat across from him. He's now 60, in his apartment in Nashville, as we drank Diet Mountain Dews, which is the hardest thing either of us drink these days. It's, a, it's been the blessing and the curse the whole journey. It's been my savior, and it's been the thing that's, that's been the most painful and taken me down. And I know you told me last night when you called me that there's knowledge in the ditches. Yeah. So, you know, so the ditches, like, I mean, so we're going to talk about the, the marriages, which may have been arranged marriages. Um, um, number one hits, childhood trauma, drug addiction— there was the arrest in the park in, in Fort Worth, relapse, recovery, relapse, recovery, mm-hmm. um, suicidal thoughts, faith, a breakup, crystal meth. Um, but I just, I say, I'm saying all this because the more and more I think about you, Ty, and the more and more I think about this story, your story has so many plot twists. But the <laughs> <Layers>. biggest, <laughs> Yeah, but the biggest one of all is that you're alive. Oh my God, yes. By the grace. Ty Herndon has tried and tried again. He's gotten chance after chance after chance at country music, at life. As he puts it, he's a recovery black cat. But to be serious, addicts don't get nine lives. Ty tells me he hit rock bottom, or another rock bottom anyway, on New Year's Eve 2020. And our story begins on January 1st, 2021, in the early morning. Ty had once again relapsed on crystal meth, and he was ready to die. I had... 27 Ambien in my hand and mm. um, was sitting in the floor right there in front of my grand piano. And um, there was no mercy. It, I felt no mercy. And then you told me all of this was dark. Yes. Because you had like, you had taped up the windows. Oh yeah. There wasn't a stitch of daylight because you'd been up for four days in a, in an apartment taped up with no yeah. daylight. A, a sane, sober person that would have walked through my front door, it would have, the energy would have knocked them over. My soul had flatlined. My soul was dead. Um, So I wanted to follow suit with that. So 6 a.m. in the morning, I sat on that floor, and I wasn't even crying. I mean, I was just like, okay, I'm going to go get a glass of water and just just do this. I wasn't thinking about, I wasn't thinking about, how's anybody going to find me? You know, I just wanted to go to sleep. 
I didn't want to wake up. Um, I was done. Ty was going to do it, he tells me. Call it chance, call it grace, call it God. Call it a butt dial or the whisper of an angel or the spirit of his late father. Those are two theories Ty has. Something intervened. The phone rang. Or Ty called someone. He can't quite remember, but he says he likes it that way. Nevertheless, a friend did come over, and Ty was able to receive long-term inpatient treatment. And he says, and perhaps this is the most important thing, he began getting honest with himself for the first time in his life. And I started nailing and uh, unnailing the coffin of trauma, because it is a coffin, and it will kill you. And I was walking dead, man. For, for a long time. Over the past 18 months, Ty has put in the work. He's dug through those layers and layers, unpacking and processing traumas he'd never been able to acknowledge. He began connecting dots he didn't even know were there. For Ty, that's meant going all the way back to the beginning, to his childhood in the Deep South. Because you grew up in Alabama. I did. Southern Baptist. Uh, Bapticostal. What is that? <laughs> it's a mixture of Baptist and Pentecostal. It is Spirit-Filled Baptist, so we'll just call it that. Yeah, a lot of music, a lot of drums, guitars. Uh, is there speaking in tongues? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. It sounds intense. It is intense, but it, I knew no differently growing up. I mean, you know, right. when, when people started running the aisles and shouting, Mom would just stick us under the pew, we, you know, <laughs> so we wouldn't get stepped on. How old were you when you got saved? Five. Five really? or six, yeah. Very, very traditional old country. I'm getting saved today, and I'm getting baptized tomorrow. I, when I was 10 years old, I was called to preach. By the time I was 13, I was singing and writing songs with my aunts and seeing people. Just, I mean, I was anointed. I was an anointed kid. It was the center of, of your life, but at some yeah. point, someone heard you sing, and someone said, you're good. Yeah. That was my grandmother. What was your favorite church song growing up? Because that's where you... Just as I am without one plea. Um, what is I am, It said, oh, Baptist hymnal. My grandmother would hear me singing these when I was a kid, and she would put me on a Coca-Cola box on her radio show. I come to the garden alone. I would sing. My mother and her sisters would also sing on the radio show. I, there were great singers in my family. I'm just the one that decided to do it for a living. You could go home with me for Christmas and hear, hear Patsy Cline, pretty much. This was my gift, and I knew it. I wanted to be a Christian singer. I wanted to be a pastor. And other people knew it. I mean, like they, a lot of other people knew it. And, and, and things changed for me drastically when I was 13, um, at a tent revival, actually. Um, it was all, it all shattered. What happened? We had traveling evangelists for tent revivals that would come around, and I just sang, and all these people were were praising God. And this this evangelist, uh, right off the bat, started preaching on homosexuality and the sins of homosexuality, how how we were beasts, how we were going to burn in hell, and how we were the walking devils of the earth. I'll never forget those words. And he pointed right at me. He said, he, he did it 10 times, homosexual, you know, just devil, burning hell. And it was just like, I guess maybe there was a little something sassy about me when I was a kid, um, you know, Whoa. that he uh, didn't like. I changed in that moment. Mm. I didn't even know what, I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I was one. I just didn't know the word. This was hundreds I, of people. Hundreds of people, yes. And someone had articulated things about yourself that you already feared uh, in your safe space of church. In my safe space of church. And no, and no one, of course, knew. I think, you know, I think moms always know. Um, mm -hmm. And I stopped singing. I no longer, I know, I, I wouldn't hardly go to school. This was trauma one, mm -hmm. trauma day one. I went from this vibrant kid to not wanting to sing, not wanting to talk to you, um, and and, and it would, you walked on eggshells around me. It, it scarred me so heavily because I knew that I could never do what I thought I would get to do. A mother knows, we like to say. And Ty's mom, who his friends call Miss Peggy, brought his voice back. His senior year of high school, Miss Peggy told him about an audition for a summer job at Opryland. She termed it a spiritual calling. He got the job, and started playing with a group that went by the name of the Grizzly River Boys. They were good. 
They were so good, they got scouted for a new talent show, which was hitting TV in 1983. But one member was so good, he stood out. So, as things go, the whole band didn't make the cut, but Ty did, and he went solo. I went to pieces when she blew in Like a strong man running through a hurricane wind And you kind of pulled a Beyonce. I pulled a Beyonce. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went and did fairly well uh, on a TV show called Star Search, my first trip to Los Angeles. The next semi-finalist in the male vocalist category from Nashville, Tennessee, welcome Ty Herndon. Just want to say I thank the Lord for the opportunity to be back, and I tell you, I've met a lot of wonderful people here, and it's been great. Give I came in number, number two. I was, I was first runner-up. <laughs> and Sam Harris actually beat me out, big Broadway star. So you were at Opryland. You were in this group. Y'all all went to audition for Star Search together, right? but someone at Star Search plucked you out. Plucked me out. So another moment of, you're good, you're special. Yes. Like, I mean, like people are telling you. Very much you've so. You've got star quality. Very much so. Because you're, you're how old at this point? I'm 82. I'm 18. You're I turned, 18. I turned 19 on the show. Yeah. And uh, it was incredible. I, I felt like I could be really successful at that point outside of gospel music. And I gave up that dream. You weren't out. I was not out. Oh, God, no. While I was at Opryland, I was engaged a couple of times because I could not give up um, my, my cowboy-ness to give in to anything that was gay. I always thought that they, is no, matter how, no matter how many cowboy hats I put on, they must see through it. <laughs> they must. I mean, what am I doing, you know? Uh, and um, it, was, it was just constant torture in, in my brain about it. Why am I not good enough? You know, why, you know, this thing is going to be with me the rest of my life. I've got to find a way out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't want it. You knew it was a professional liability. I knew it was a even at big, 17, even at 17 and 18, at 17 and 18. Cause you had, you had your eye on the prize. Yes. You wanted to be a star. Yes. So around this time in his life, he tried crystal meth for the first time. Ty would battle his addiction off and on for the next four decades. Let's talk about if we can, about crystal meth. Sure. The first time you did it, mm -hmm. where, how old? Um, I was 19 years old. And was that in LA? That was in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, it was given to me. And you were out there for Star Search. I was, I was out there for, for Star Search TV show. Yes. And I, um, uh, um, I ended up not, uh, being in control of anything and I ended up, um, there was some sexual abuse that happened, uh, that was, uh, against my will and I'm not going to say a lot about that right now because it's still a work in progress for me. This is the only time Ty has ever spoken on the record about the sexual abuse he experienced the first time he ever used crystal meth. He was raped. This is clearly a subject that is still difficult for him to talk about. He wasn't comfortable going into more detail, and as he's in treatment for it right now, I chose not to press him on it. So, you did meth for the first time at 19, uh -huh. and with that first time, something not great happened, and we're not going to talk anymore about it, but you continue to do meth. Yes. From 19. Yeah. You no, did no, it? that was a bad experience, and, and then it was years later in the honky-tonks. Oh, gosh, I was 29. Okay, so good, like, 10 years later. Yeah. You're kind of a, a somewhat of a rising star. Um, you're getting your, your honky-tonk act together. Yeah. In Dallas and touring Texas. Yes. In the clubs. Yeah. And you just, and how did you find it again, or how did it find you? Um, I found it with a, a club owner who, I was getting paid one night and said, you know, Hey man, you look a little tired, you know. I didn't understand uh, exactly what I was doing, you know. But it it was just a it was a it was a it was crystal meth, and I was doing it uh, every Saturday night. I just thought I was doing what everybody was doing in the in the clubs. It was it was there, you know, some kind of drug, pills, alcohol, cocaine, pot, all of it. You know, it's it's the nightlife. And uh, that became my vice. It got worse and worse, as drugs do. Um, 
I was doing it every day. I was hiding it. Um, and then I would take, like I was capable of taking a three week break and said, okay, you know, got to take care of yourself. You can't, you know, this, this is, this can't be a problem. You got enough problems. And that gave you the illusion that you could control it. Absolutely. Yeah. I was a full on addict at that point and hated it. And that was like 95. It was like 94, 95, 93, 94, 95. I hated it. I mean, it just, it's like, again, how much more shit can you do yourself, man? You know, you're gay. So what? Tell them. I couldn't. And it just got worse. And, but my career kept getting better. Mm-hmm. So in some twisted, stupid little way, I thought, okay, this is helping. And I just stayed the course, man. So country stars, they need record labels. It was finally time for Ty to be signed. They brought me to Nashville um, and said, basically, um, we'd like you to audition. <laughs> so I walked into, I didn't play guitar. You know, in Texas, I had a hat on and I held a guitar like George Strait, in character all the time. Um, one of the first things they did when I got a record deal was take the hat off because I, I, I had hair to style, I guess. Took the guitar out of my hand. I felt so naked. So I stood in the office of Sony with nine men and one woman, Margie Hunt. And they said, okay, well, sing for us. Mm. What'd you sing? I sang, There Goes My Everything. There goes my everything. I thought I was going to crap my pants. So I'm like, okay, Herndon, this is something about me that's always been accessible. You put me in that situation, it's an out-of-body experience for me. I will perform. No matter what, um, it's that defiant little wannabe preacher kid that mm. will that will it's a, it, that will will excel because it's I, I leave my body, but that little voice in there, that little ten year old's voice, is going to come out hmm. no matter what. I said, "This is this is do or die, dude," and that's the only thing I sang. They looked at me, and said, "Thank you." I hear footsteps slowly walking as they gently walk across this lonely floor. It's like, there goes my reason for living. There goes the one of my dreams. There goes my only possession. There goes my everything. So, but I got a weird record deal. It was kind of like, we're going to record one song on you, man, and see how that does. But I could go back to Texas and say, I got a record deal. Ty's career was taking off. And his knack for living a compartmentalized life, well, that was taking off too. He was hanging out at gay bars in Dallas. Sightings of Ty at bars like the Roundup Saloon and JR's, they were making their way back to the record label. So Ty needed a cover story. What did he do? Well, he got married. I knew he'd been married once, but as it turns out, his marriage to a good friend named Renee, well, that was actually his second marriage. In both times, they were to quell any rumors that he was gay. Don't forget, this was the 90s, this was Texas, and this was country music. So you met Renee, how did y'all meet? Um, Playing honky-tonks. Yeah, she was she was she was just a wild ass girl. Never seen anybody that could throw back five shots of tequila. I wow. mean, and still walk out of the with standing up straight. Texas girls are they're they're crazy fun and really cool. But you I, you know, we just became best friends. Mm-hmm. I just loved her. You know, she we I also at the at also at the time, which not a lot of people know, um, um, when I when I went to Texas and started doing this honky tonk thing, I I met my first boyfriend. And he rolled up into a honky-tonk I was playing in with his six-foot-one cowboy hat, cowboy boot, looking like, why'd you come in here looking like that? Dolly Parton song. And I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And uh, I noticed he couldn't take his eyes off me. Really? And I just went over. I've never been bold ever in my life. You know, I just went over and said, I just want to say hi to you. I said, you look really nice. Really? Tonight. And I couldn't believe I said it. And he goes, you look really nice tonight. 
And everything about me just came bubbling over. Instinct. Instinct. It was just, it was just awesome. So he lived in Dallas. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, just, I think re- he'd recently got divorced. And, um, and we started, we started dating. I didn't know how to date. Mm. Yeah. I was like, you know, I had, uh, um, I had had uh, maybe two experiences when I worked at Opryland and said, you know how it is. Oh, God, forgive me. I'll never do that again. Kind so of you thing. had like furtive gay experiences, you know. Yes. We'll call it messing around. I just had never been in love. I didn't, mm. I would never let myself do that. So. So you fell. I fell. Yeah. And told Renee all about him. And one Texas Entertainer of the Year. And my management at the time said, we probably need to make, get you married, man. So, um, I said, okay, um, Renee, want to get married? She's like, sure. <laughs> so she she knew the whole story, and it was it was amazing. And yes. because because there was the it was a real carrot and stick situation. I mean, you yes. there's a big carrot being dangled. Yes, like we're talking about everything you'd ever wanted, which was a record deal. Yes, everything. But there's one thing wrong, and that was like you didn't have a wife. One big little secret. I think at this point the rumors were so heavy. Because I was, I got my record deal fully addicted. The dysfunction is real; it's large. the uh, uh, The trauma is it was bigger than me. And when you say arranged marriage, I think it was more of a discussion that Renee and I had. Like, hey, would you would you help me? It would be a great great gift to me if you would help me mm-hmm. here. And um, and the gift is we'll move to. You can move to Dallas, Texas, and maybe have a better life than what you have here. And so there was goodness in it, mm-hmm. and um, and we had a partnership, and it was it was it was really a blessing to me. And I tried to make it a blessing for her. Um, and yes, and so I got the record deal, and I made a really big promise to myself that I would do everything within my power to keep this secret. Uh, that it would go to the grave with me. It sounds exhausting. It was it was more than exhausting. It was it, it was it was on the trauma train and I couldn't keep up from being on the road, this addiction. The rumors were that I was at uh, the Roundup Saloon at, almost every night after uh, I finished my performances at the Honky Tonks and uh, on weekends when I was off. Um, well, to be clear for those who, who don't know, the, the, the Roundup, it's a gay country western bar where you'll see same-sex couples two-stepping. Yes. And it's for me, it's one of the most you know beautiful things to ever see. And so it's true you were there? I was there a lot with my partner, and we were both great dancers. So we were, you know, two two uh, good-looking fellows in cowboy hats, uh, you know. Uh, and tight wranglers. And tight wranglers, yeah. And uh, it was naive, because I thought that people that were in the clubs would never be in the gay clubs. I, th- I thought it was so segregated and so separate. Well, the record label did call my manager so management and say, could we ask Mr. Herndon to please stay out of the gay bars? Whoa. Because the rumors are getting back to country radio, and um, we just are going to make a really kind request that he just simply stop that. So how, so how was that message relayed to you, and what did it feel like when you heard that? The beginning of years of shame. So that compartmentalized world, the partitions he'd built shielding his different lives, it began to teeter. He gets a call from the manager to lay off the gay bars. He's shocked people might be seeing the real tie, whatever that means on any given day. And at the time, he's beginning to have real success. He's opening for Garth Brooks. He's pulling in big crowds. And he's fraying. And at the same time, here comes that big debut album, What Mattered Most. You're trying to find a balance between a wife, a boyfriend, rising stardom, and a drug addiction. And a drug addiction. Whew, a lot of plates spinning. Now, but here's the deal. Your first time up, you hit it out of the park. Yeah, big time. Like, what mattered most went straight yeah. to number one. Yes. Most added song in country music today, still. <laughs> yeah. Just, explain, what, what's, explain what that means, most means added. means that every radio station in America and Canada added the song out of the box, it immediately jumped on the charts at a high position, and within 14 weeks, I had a two-week number one song. Her eyes were blue, her hair was long, 64, 
she was born in Baton Rouge. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, Ty's debut single broke a record in country music that still stands today. Radio DJs loved the song so much they threw it straight onto the airwaves, rather than waiting for listener requests. The type of organic growth that a new song would typically experience. What mattered most was uh, such a huge breakthrough hit. It was one of those songs that like everyone knew uh, the words to. It was just everywhere on the radio. You couldn't escape it, uh, even if you wanted to. <laughs> and, and nobody wanted to because it was just one of those songs that people love. Cody Allen is a CMT radio and TV host today. But back in the 90s, he was a morning DJ in Dallas. He helped me get a handle on what Ty's debut looked like in real time. He was beginning to get su- you know, such a big presence on radio and uh, in country music that we started searching, I remember, uh, on the playlist for album cuts to play. Because it's like, oh, yeah, we got the hits already. Let's look for some other songs that we can throw into the mix from Ty. <laughs> That's how big he was at the time. We were just kind of like hungry for more uh, music. And by the way, I think it's just his voice. Re- I mean, yes, great songs, of course, but his voice just always struck me as so unique uh, and stand out. Again, it was sort of undeniable. Oh my God, what did I do? It is a pretty heartbreaking song. It uh, is. The last line is, oh my God, what did I do? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's another lyric, you know, I miss the point, I miss the signs. So if she's gone, the fault is mine. is mine. Yeah. Yeah. And being a being a gay man and having a hit like that, and then I, I was counting it up probably a trillion times that I sang the word she in in my life with that song. Um, um I would find myself at the back of the bus going, his eyes are blue, his hair was long. Mm. Just 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 to feel connected. Authentic. Authentic. And because there was, my authenticity was, there wasn't even an ounce left. It was, it was, it was secrets and lies. And that little 13 year old evangelist boy was gone. Yeah, it was, it was an instant smash. And, uh, and I was an instant smash. It's like a ticking time bomb. It was. I was watching it all. It was like I was had so many out of body experiences at that point. Standing up in front of you know twenty five thousand people on this stage. Please welcome Ty Herndon. Meanwhile, you had like you know four, you know, at least three big secrets in the back of your head. Oh God, yes. A wife yeah. and a boyfriend and a drug addiction. Is That's that a l- country song. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to be completely honest with you, and I'm going to be, it's what we're here for. Um, you know, I wasn't sober when I made that first record. Mm-hmm. I was terrified that anyone would find out my secret. I was the golden child. I was the pinnacle of that year for for, for well, Sony. Well, you were. New York, like, Nashville, and London. Yeah. There, it was Because that class of 95, yeah, you know. Yeah, man. And, and who else came up with you? Who else was there in 95? Oh, gosh. It was uh, the Dixie Chicks, Patty Loveless, Joe Diffie, Colin Ray. Um, um, gosh, that, that's about that's about it. Yeah. We had we had a, a, a tight little family. Uh, but you um, all kind of, you all made your debuts, and you were the only one to score successive number ones. Right. And so you had what, what mattered most, living in a moment, it must be love. Am I missing one? Love too much. Love too much, yeah. So you're 33, you're married to Renee, you've settled in Dallas, you're on yeah. top of the world. For some reason, you're set to perform at a convention of Texas police chiefs, which is the craziest and most specific concert I've ever heard of. You can't write this stuff. <laughs> but yeah. that very day. That very day. You go to a park. It was a real bad day. Yeah. It, was, it was a pretty day. I remember that once again, I had been up for quite a few days and was actually home for 24 hours to see my partner, to see Renee, see my mom. Hang on, when you say partner, you mean boyfriend? Boyfriend, So yes. you're going to see your boyfriend, you're going to see your wife. Yes. And your mom. And my mom. I was sitting with uh, the number billboard chart number five song in the country i want my goodbye back um which was a massive hit i I was somewhere in between an alternate universe of this dude with an ego um i was on my way and and invincible i would kick this drug problem i just it's something i had to do right now and 
the secrets were, I felt like were in their place because success was happening. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to mess with it. Um, I felt pretty good. I'd just gone and picked up drugs because I knew we were going to be out on the road for six weeks. Um, I just, I knew this park and I knew that I was driving to Fort Worth. I had on running shorts and tennis shoes and a tank top. And I just took a little walk up through the woods. In a notorious gay park. In a notorious gay park, the label kind of spun it that I was taking a leak in the park. Maybe I did, you know. It was the it was the easiest story to spin. So you peed. Yeah. So I I I, I go to the bathroom. You know I, that did happen. All right. Let's stop for a second and just ask it. What really happened? That would depend on whose story you believe. The cops, the record labels, the news report said anything from indecent exposure all the way to masturbating in public. Here's how Ty remembers it today. I turned around and and there's this this big dude walking towards me. And um, he said, he said, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. I pulled my hands out of my pocket, pulled my short up. I said, I'm doing great. Really smart ass like. And he said, well, cowboy, this is just not your day. And I looked at him like, what do you mean? And I was on the ground with handcuffs on. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a minute. You know, I really didn't. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I just pulled up my shorts, dude. You know, there was, there wasn't any sexual nasty act going on. It just was that. And that's that's just the truth. And and you thought he was coming on to you. Of course. You showed him your penis. Yes. Yeah. You know, like this is we what call I got. it we call it the Johnson around okay. here. All right. You showed him your Johnson. <laughs> yeah. And that was just kind of, you know, hey, here's this. Here's you know, this. Yeah. Because he seemed he was interested. I'm gonna be really straight because I've never talked about this before. Yeah. I can't sit here and tell you that I went to that park to hook up, just to be checked out. Yeah. And uh, just to, you know, to cruise. I think that's the word. So where did the story about you masturbating in front of a plainclothes police officer come from? There was absolutely no masturbating. On on my father's grave, there was not that. The Associated Press, the Chicago Tribune, it was like you were like sitting on a a log or a bench or something and just like— and masturbating yeah it's, so it's crazy believe me i know the jerk off jokes that would started going around country radio were incessant it was i mean it like was it's so it's, spun it's out of literally control like i want to set the record straight that i was not masturbating yeah i exposed myself you did expose that yourself. was yeah that was the uh, extent and, of it and whatever you whatever you were doing there yeah um, it's it i mean life changed Whew. oh because suddenly you were in handcuffs the, the world was spinning it was just, it was it was it was euphoria gone bad. I didn't see a badge. I just, I saw handcuffs. And I was led off to an unmarked police car where I was put face down in the back seat. Whoa. I did not think that I was going to get out of it alive. I was desperately talking to this guy saying, hey, man, I'm here to play a show. You know, I'm, a, I'm an artist. That was just, it, it turned into from that to, this This was just a joke, man. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm not gay, <laughs> you know, and... Because you were also you were you were high. I mean, because you were always high at that point, and so um, I like to say a little bit because yeah. I had to go do a show. Yeah. Um, so you just of all the things in your mind, all you the also, things. Yeah. It was chaotic. I finally got his attention. Said, "You're going to have to tell him my name is Ty and my last name's Herndon, and I am a country artist. I'm here to do the show." And this was this was just this is a misunderstanding, man. Um, this went on for two hours in handcuffs. In handcuffs. In the car. I got arrested at one o'clock in the afternoon. I remember finally being pulled up to the, I think it was a Marriott hotel where this was going on. Um, at this point, it was six o'clock. They didn't know where I was. Whoa. The boys thought I was something happened. They're calling my mom. They're calling my wife. They're calling, they're calling my boyfriend. Your band. My band. All these policemen came out and I thought, are they all here for me? What the fuck? So I'm sitting there just in the most humiliation I've ever in my life with a hundred police officers. They're all just looking at you in the back of an unmarked car in handcuffs. My first cousin, my road manager at the time, and he's yelling at this police officer, get him out of that car. Now, at least put him on the tour bus. Don't let these people see him like this. I sat there for an hour in that car while they were deciding my fate. 
All right, this may sound absurd, but stay with me here. At the beginning of this story, I mentioned that Ty was playing at a convention of police chiefs. That's the reason so many cops swarmed the unmarked car when he was waiting in the parking lot. And that's the reason he stayed there for so long. But another thing Ty says he didn't know at that moment is that he was caught between two rival law enforcement departments. And they had beef. It was on like crazy. I mean, he was not going to let me go. I heard him say, I'm going to have him booked for indecent exposure. And the other police officer said, well, that'll take an hour. Can we get him back here for the show? It's indecent exposure. You know, it was a really bad day. I shouldn't have been there. I should have been at Soundcheck. But euphoria, gas, drugs, uh, feeling confident that maybe one of these handsome people running around here might know who I am, and it might be a cool experience. I mean, these are the things you tell yourself. Because I've gone over it and over it in my mind. I don't anymore. But this is the more I've, most I've talked about it in, in a long time. I was never so happy to get booked. I just wanted it over. Whatever the damage would be, we'll deal with it. And in the back of my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, at least people are going to know now. Whoa. I never saw that police officer again. He handed me over to a lady cop. And I'll never forget her going, Mr. Herndon. I was like, fuck. Okay, some, you, got, you got what you wanted. Somebody knows who you are. Um, the lady officer said, I really like your music, man. Mm. She goes, I got to go through the, do your things because, you know. And then it hit me. I never even thought about it. The drugs were in the wallet. <gasps> it hit me so hard, I thought I was going to pass out. I was like, God, please let those be stuck so far in there that they'll, I mean, it was was a good amount. It was a big wallet. And that lady, I saw her face. She goes, get him to a padded cell right now. They took my picture, my mugshot, with two officers holding my arms. All of a sudden, I was a drug dealer. And they put me in a padded cell. I was freezing. I remember that. An officer, a man officer, opened the little door. This is like prison shit. Opened the door and said, Mr. Herndon, stuck my CD through. Said, Mr. Herndon, would you please sign this for my wife? Oh, come on. I couldn't believe it. I was like, in my little brain, I was like, if I, maybe this is a great sign. <laughs> I signed the officer's CD. I signed it. The door closed back. Like a tiny little like cubbyhole type opening, like a mail slot. And he s- gives you a CD and a Sharpie? Yeah. Jesus. Ty makes bail. But then comes the next trial. The court of public opinion for music stars arrested for indecent exposure. By the way, we were three years away from George Michael's incident in Beverly Hills at this point. It was everywhere. It was fucking everywhere. I mean, the morning news, <coughs> my mother saw it on the news. I didn't have a chance to tell anybody that I was okay. And I was completely in shock, trauma so deep that I couldn't tell you my name. We got me in treatment, and um, I uh, one of the biggest trauma moments of my life, one of the top five, um, I arrived at Sierra Tucson in Phoenix, Arizona. I had to do a press conference in front of the gates of rehab, which would never be allowed today. They called a press conference. Yes. At the gates of your rehab and made you, they, your record label made you talk to the press. And what did you tell them? I want to apologize to my fans and to my mom and to my wife. I'm going to deal with my problem and I'll be back making records with you soon. And that was it. Then I walked in, and I was there for 30 days. So hindsight being 2020, this could have been a moment for change. But Ty was wildly talented. He was making a lot of people a lot of money. And he had always been special and treated as such. He was, I suppose, too big to fail for the time being. My single dropped from number five completely off the charts. Country Radio dropped it completely. But this amazing team of radio folks that work at Sony... 
um, got it back. Where you had left it. Where I'd left it. It was at number five when I left rehab. It was still one of the hottest songs. And I heard it on the radio in the chow hall when the kitchen people were playing it. And at CR Tucson. At CR Tucson. And I, about halfway through, I took that as a sign that I still had a career. You just got back to life, right? Yeah. It's just back to life. And so back to back to a wife and a boyfriend and back to a drug addiction. Yeah. I, I basically went to rehab and came back out and jumped back on the road. But eventually the hits got smaller and his addiction grew larger. In 2004, he divorced Renee ended his relationship with Mr. Dallas at the same time, and moved to Los Angeles. He was told maybe he should try acting or making music for TV and movies. I, was, I found myself not writing music, not writing, and I, I'd, I had left the uh, 14-year relationship that I was in, in Dallas, and I was in a new relationship and bought a house in Los Angeles. I relapsed, I started using. I wasn't doing anything. I was bored. I spent a lot of money and uh, didn't make any music for six years. That was the that was the the, the time the music died, and uh, I. That was the second, the actually the first time that I my soul flatlined. I just I just I was a whiff of a person that no one recognized. That's the first time I ever really was empty, and and did not give a fuck, and. Um, that is not a man that anyone recognized because I could fake it before, you know, um, almost at the end of my life. I always like to say, cause I just, just like, I'm never going to get out of this. This is not, this is not healable. Um, I'm invisible. And my mother got on an airplane, showed up at my apartment and, um, I didn't even know she was coming. And my a really good friend of mine, they brought my mom over and my mother had bought my coffin. She'd paid for my funeral. She said, son, uh, this is goodbye. I, nobody in your family wants anything to do with you anymore. Uh, you, you are basically um, gone. And so here is your coffin. She kissed me on the cheek. She hugged me tightly and she left and she flew back home. Jesus. I just, I just remember shutting down even deeper with that, that, that envelope on the table. Um, my friend came back um, and um, she just basically said, look, man, you know, get a gun, end it. Or um, I just want you to know that, that, uh, that I've paid for your rehab. I wrote a check. It's paid for Cumberland Heights, Nashville, Tennessee. You need to go home. You need to die or go home. Either way, you're going home. Mm. And there's a plane leaving at 6 a.m. It's the only way you're going to see your mama again because she'll be there to pick you up. And uh, by the grace of God, the, the 10-year-old one, I, I, the little guy one, I got on the plane and I, uh, I came home and I got my first taste of, of a real program, you know, because Sierra Tucson, as wonderful it was, that was a, that was a stick the artist away and let it, let him have a thirty day break. I never went to one meeting when I came out of that treatment center. I went right out to the road, but I discovered meetings. I discovered a, a sober community, uh, great friends to this day, uh, um, and um, I started my journey back, and I was able to uh, start making music again. Um, and I moved, I was living with my mom. I got out of treatment. She's awesome mom. No coffin. We're good. And uh, she returned the coffin? No. It's, are you kidding? That's a great reminder for me. That's, that's, the coffin is still paid for. Yes. And still waiting. Absolutely. My mama bought it for me. So I started reaching out, started writing songs. Within one year, I uh, we, we wrote this incredible album called Journey On. I met some people that helped me put the record out. I got a Grammy nomination and I won a Dove Award. Um, within one year out of rehab, uh, the promises were real. Um, I loved it. At that point, I was just able to get sober. Ty was on his way back to the top. He was getting a second chance at music, at fame, at the life he could have, he should have had. 
For the guy who'd once been slated to be the next Garth Brooks, the man with a golden throat, Kristen Chenoweth likes to say, a Grammy nomination just felt like the next logical step. But the fact is, relapse is oftentimes a part of recovery. Well, look, I mean, I, I feel comfortable saying, like, we're, we're both sober. We are. And I know the, we both know the power of one day at a time. Absolutely. But the thing is, that sobriety didn't last. It lasted a long time. I mean, that's 16, 16 years. years. Yeah, clean. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, can, uh, I, can I ask what happened? I mean, of, what Of what course. Happened? I came out in 2014. I say it's kind of like uh, putting icing on a pretty strong cake, but not knowing what's in the cake. There you go. Yeah. So I had a lot of stuff I hadn't dealt with in the cake, but I was I was feeling pretty good. You know, I was I was sober. I was uh, in love. Uh, we I came out. Uh, it, it, the story broke two days earlier. Um, I woke up to about three hundred text messages on my phone. I mean, people were blowing me up, and it was wonderful. I I was treated so kindly. Nashville embraced me. Things were booming. Uh, we were getting shows. We were getting uh, interest from book deals, getting interest uh, from made-for-TV movies. This, all this stuff was in the works. Um, and we're here. We moved to Nashville. Just think things were, were pretty great. And uh, um, just fast forward because there was just work in between there. And, and then uh, we had so much going on. The life he'd always dreamed of was closer than ever. But then came the pandemic. Ty says he had so much in the works. So the loss of opportunity, then he had many sick friends. And then there's just the nature of addiction. Look, a lot of people relapse. That is the nature of it. It's a serious disease. And he found himself on the edge. You have to understand, for addicts and alcoholics, the pandemic was a one, two, three punch. First, just the pandemic, loss of employment, fear of illness, actual illness. Then we didn't have in-person meetings. And for many, that was just crippling. Fellowship is critical for us. And three, alcoholism and addiction. Well, it's a disease of isolation. It thrives when we are alone. I was, in my mind, I was back. There was a chance that maybe with all this, I could take my Garth Brooks status back. Maybe with with coming out and being authentic and telling my story, I can I can take my life back. And we were, man... I placed my entire world on that comeback. And COVID. COVID hits, and within a matter of three days, 140 tour dates down the drain, deposits sent back, book deals off the table. I watched my management have to call me and go, okay, okay. Oh, God, I I hate to tell you this. And it sawed into me. Like you took a chainsaw and kept cutting a limb off. I had a nervous breakdown and I uh, at first drank a lot and then I bought drugs and then I and then within a matter of four months um, I was in full on relapse from all of it and um, standing on my balcony, screaming things at God that no one should ever scream at God, because I really blamed God. I was like, I've never done this. I always look to you for whatever energy is higher power, but you're, you know, uh, this is personal. And not only is it personal for me, it's personal because I'm watching people drop like flies, and I'm watching, you know, right off the bat, three people from my church pass away. Um, it just it became more than this little country boy could handle. And I had no answers. And I ran back to the only thing that, that might have given me a little bit of relief. But here's the funny fucking thing about it. Um, it wasn't the same. <laughs> that was, it wasn't the same medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, it was acid at this point. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was hurt. It was heartbreak. It was... Um, it, my nerves were jumping out of my body. Um, and so my relapse with that drug was pretty quick. Mm. And, and it, it was, it was horrific. All of it came tumbling down. And I could not hide or fake any of it anymore. I managed to talk to my mama cause she's older. 
I managed to, to, to fool her for a minute. I managed to fool my sister for a minute. I moved into, I'm going to kill myself euphoria. That's all there is to it. Finality, relief. Yeah, I was quite okay with it. Because there was... There was no... Because there's no way out. Way out. That was it. That was the only it. solution. The only solution. Yeah. And I can tell you today, I believed that with all of my little 10-year-old heart. I felt I had left a legacy of music. I'd been nominated for a Grammy. I won a Dove Award. Had five number one records. Sold six million records. But never felt so invisible and never felt so alone. What I can say about that morning more than anything, I cannot believe how calm I was. Because for weeks up to that, I just I was in so much pain. I just didn't want to be on the planet anymore. And on that morning, uh, I basically, you know, had God or the Gun is the song we wrote, but I had 27 Ambien in my hand. And um, I was sitting in the floor right there in front of my grand piano where we wrote God or the Gun. And um, there was no mercy. It, I felt no mercy. Is it God or the gun? Staring down the barrel, looking up. You only get to pick one. Oh, I prayed until my heart was numb. I just didn't feel like I was worth living. I didn't feel like that there was an ounce of me that I loved. I knew people loved me but I think they were really tired of loving me. And it wasn't a, I'm thinking about suicide. It was, I want to commit suicide. I am planning to commit suicide. I do not want to be on this planet anymore. I'm done. And that is one of the most personal and heartbreaking things you can say. Mm -hmm. Not only to yourself, but to someone else. Um, I, yeah, we're sitting in my home right now. I sat in that floor right over there and was calm as can be about dying. That is where all this trauma train took me. And no amount of drugs, no amount of alcohol, um, no amount of any of it, COVID, um, none of it would have, would have, was, was going to be, help me. Mm -hmm. I, I was, that's where I was. And I guess the biggest struggle that I have is I did that. I could have made better choices, mm. but I didn't. Um, and that is addiction. He was standing at the precipice. This was it. Well, for Ty Herndon, he hoped this was it. He hoped he'd hit rock bottom. But as we've learned so far, addiction has no floor. You go to rehab a third time. We know you went to Houston. And and you've certainly, we know you're an addict, right? Yeah. We, we, that's without question. But we, but you also found out that you also suffer from bipolar. Yes, and that changed everything for me. I never knew how much that I had pushed down mm. until I went to Jay Flowers Institute and started working with actual doctors to help me with it. I was grateful beyond words to figure out that there was extreme reasons for my soul flatlining and living that way. Mm -hmm. It was just heartbreaking. I can't believe I'm here, to be honest with you. I think when Dr. Flowers said to me, you know, you walked in here, but they brought you in on a gurney, was some of the most powerful words. And now you understand a little more because you're bipolar. Yes. Yes. And ADD and dyslexic. <laughs> what is? What have you been able to reconcile with like, oh, wow, now that I understand that I'm bipolar... Like, you know, what, what do you understand more about yourself or what makes sense to you now? Everything makes sense to me now. Because you're, you're, you're on medication for it. Yes, there's not a, I can have a clear thought that makes sense to me now. I didn't have all these voices screaming in my head. I could actually, unless I started a med for that, there's no way I could have even dove into the trauma. I, I could have done did, did any of it. And I've, my friends have said, who are you? Uh, I mean, it's been such a shift in my personality, and uh, uh, I'm able to come home to me. That's the biggest. Uh, I'm, I'm preaching again. You hear me elevating. <laughs> yeah. Has it given your mind like a like a base, a new baseline from which to work? Oh, Is God, that kind of yes. And did and and did drugs 
and alcohol for a while help you achieve that baseline? Yes, for sure. It's It's been a lot. And I feel like here I am 60 years old and I feel like I'm finally free. I don't have anything to hide. And so it's it's I've spent a lifetime of hiding everything and, and connecting the dots so it made sense to people. Being able to sit down with someone and just have a conversation and go, here's the truth. And I do that in my daily with my friends now, right. I'll even find myself going, "Hey, let me start over with that." Um, let I'm me, lying a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm lying a little bit. Yeah. Let me get you. Let me. And they love it. They're like, "Okay, you know, this is this is the guy I want to be around." What I am is a guy with a story, and it's it's a hard story. And I'm still here, and I'm going to write songs about it. We've got more of the story to tell, but I'll circle back to that 13 year old kid. I am today in this moment who that kid should have become. You know the idea of this is like nearly absurd if you just wrote, if someone just told me and it wasn't you attached to it. So 60 year, 60 years old, you know, newly sober, gay, his like maybe your third time around in Nashville. Yeah. And a new album. I mean, the idea of that on its face is so ambitious and nearly absurd. It is. It I mean, is. And you recognize that, right? I do, of course. Of course. It makes me take a step back most mornings and then I have to step back in. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's that is and so what I the 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 sheer audacity of it is also just really impressive. Wow, yeah, you're gonna make me cry. Um, I did not get there by myself. Um, I I uh, cannot believe the people that are showing up for this right now, and I'm so grateful to give them all of me. <laughs> Some of the folks showing up for this moment for Ty, for this comeback, have been here the whole time, actually. He's been very open with his struggles and his addictions and his life. He's been very open about that. Look what has survived. And because of what he's been through, I think, the re- if I may, the voice has gotten deeper hmm. and the heart has gotten deeper and the empathy has become more understood by him not just as an artist, but as a human. This is a person that has to battle it and battles it and wins it. Here's a guy who's got a string of hits in the 90s, but I wondered to myself, can he do the same thing in 2022? And when I heard the song, it was uplifting, it was compelling, it was upbeat. This song is so good, and he sounds so good on it. I've always believed that three minutes can really save anyone, uh, anyone's career. If you can make that three minutes happen, I do. I still believe that it can save anyone, um, and and we'll see if it saves Ty. So this new album is the most personal, intimate project Ty has ever been a part of. He says, and you can just tell that from the title, Jacob. As a preacher's son, I know a thing or two about Jacob, and this guy, he doesn't sound all too different from our man Ty. Well, let me tell you what I found about Jacob. Jacob is a biblical hero who depicts the power and grace of God to change and renew. Mm. He is most commonly known in the Bible for his cunning and deceitful ways, mm. especially toward his twin brother, Esau. Esau. Okay. Um, however, after losing to God in a wrestling match, Jason, Jacob received God's blessing and a new home. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I feel like I've wrestled with God my entire life because I, I, I've always, I grew up loving a higher power. Um, and I feel like I have having the opportunity to take those scars and help people change their endings to help to, to help my to help my tribe. And that's what it's called in the in, in, in the big book as an addict. How many times have we wrestled with God? Yeah. And we all know we're not gonna win. That's, that's what I call the popcorn machine. But if we surrender if we surrender, um, then we've changed our ending. In many ways, Ty's story parallels the biblical one of Jacob. They're both stories of struggle, of hubris, and of redemption. But they differ in one way. Jacob laid down his burden after a wrestling match. He accepted that he'd been bested by God, and in that moment was changed. Ty fights a different battle. He wrestles with God each and every day. Ty Herndon has had many endings, but none of them are so far final. His story is chock full of moments that, by all rights, he shouldn't have been able to bounce back from. What we've heard is a new beginning. One where the ending isn't clear. I hope he's changed it for the better. 
There is at least one happy ending here. July 15th brings Ty's new album, Jacob. We've played three songs from the album for you today, but believe me when I say, it does only get better from here. In closing, I want to say how grateful I am to Ty for his openness, honesty, and willingness to sit down and have such a meaningful conversation with me. It was a true pleasure, and thank you all for listening. People Every Day is produced by Chrissy Lindquist, Tony Mantia, Madison Lesby, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, and Rebecca Chaison, and the great team at Pod People. Edited and engineered by Erica Huang, Morgan Foos, and Carter Wogan. People's producers are me, Janine Rubenstein, and Charlotte Triggs, with help from Elisa Sessler and Fallon Harge. Executive produced by David Blumenbaum and Zoe Ruderman.